going back to these statements in this scripture, they were smote with blasting and mildew and hail and all the labors of their hands. There's a couple parallel passages I'm not going to read, but you could jot them in your margin or notebook as cross-references this. The fourth chapter of Amos, especially from the 6th to the 13th verse, uses almost the same kind of language. It goes through some of the same kind of statements. Joel 1 and 2 have some similar things. This is interesting. It talks about being smoked with blasting, mildew, and hail. I've actually heard commentators say that they think this is a mistake because it couldn't be true. They'd have both at once. So they think this is a mistake in the Bible. Blasting is talking about like a dry wind. Mildew and hail are created by wet conditions. So it sounds like they simultaneously were not receiving enough moisture and they were receiving too much moisture. Well, that's not simultaneously in the natural realm. It just means that over that period of time they were under judgment. There were times it was real dry and hot and that was damaging. There were times it was too much water, you know, from hail to things just being so wet and damp that mildew was created. But spiritually, the two extremes of a spiritually dry environment and an oversaturated environment are both negative. You wouldn't think you could be spiritually oversaturated. Technically, if it's a spirit, you can't be. But you can get oversaturated if it's not the spirit. Like I said, the latter doesn't seem like it'd be very likely, but if your emotions are engaged in the worship beyond what the Spirit is actually doing, and that emotional engagement becomes the predominant goal rather than a balance of the Word and the Spirit, that's not productive. There's no point in getting worked up if there's never anything worked into or out of you. doesn't do you a bit of good to get worked up if you never get anything worked in or anything worked out. Some of the times I felt God really wind me up in the Spirit, I knew what He was trying to do. He was trying to add something to my life or take something out of my life. But if I had just got on it like getting on a roller coaster ride, you know, you're just having a good time and the thrill of the adrenaline and the thrill of getting bounced around and all the noise around you and people screaming and stuff, and you're, this is great, you know. If nothing is happening productive, there's no point in seeking constant motivation, encouragement, excitement, inspiration, recharging if those motivating forces never motivate you to change. Change is the key. In this 19th verse, he says, Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, is yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth? From this day will I bless you. Now, you might be able to break down each of those trees symbolically, and I'm not going to do that because I don't think it's necessary to make the point here. I think the most important point here is the fact that he had not yet been blessing them with fruit. But he is saying, from this day, I will bless you, which looks like up to this point, up to the point at which they hadn't been building the temple, and then up to this three-month period when they'd started, up to this point, they still weren't getting the harvest they were expecting. But from this day, from the 24th day of the ninth month, But notice he starts this with the phrase, is the seed yet in the barn? That Hebrew word megura is translated barn. Sometimes people translate it storehouse. It actually isn't talking about a building. It's talking about a pit where they would dig a pit to store things in. So it's a pit in the ground. And it made me think of Matthew 25, 18, where one of the men went and buried his talent in the ground. He digged in the hole and buried it in the ground. The seed is not supposed to be in a pit in the ground. It's not supposed to be in the barn. Now, historically, he might be saying something that Brother Lee alluded to earlier. He might be saying, we've used up all of our seed. We still haven't got enough return on our investment. There's nothing even in the barn to last us through the winter. That might have been what it meant historically to them. But I'm going to make a practical application what I think applies to us. We should be constantly restocking the seed in the barn, but we're supposed to be using the seed. We're not trying to hoard the seed. We're not supposed to hide what God's given us in the ground. We're supposed to sow it in whatever way we can and in whatever strength that he gives us. 
So by this point in the ninth month, the seed should have been sown. Brother Lee, if you were referring to the harvest periods, the period they were in up to this point, the Talmud breaks down what their harvest periods were. It explains how their harvest periods were. The tradition is that the last half of the seventh month they were planting seed, the whole eighth month they were planting seed, and the first half of the ninth month they were planting seed. Which means by the 24th day of the ninth month, all the seed should have been planted. So of course there shouldn't have been any seed in the barn if they planted all their seed. And I'm going to tell you right now, you don't plant your seed. I don't know how you'd expect there to be any fruit. I think some people are expecting fruit without planting the seed or without tending the seed. I'm a big believer in the necessity of planting the seed, in season and out of season. There's sometimes you plant some seed out of season. It doesn't look like it's going to have one bit of result. And I've given you examples of times when some of the brethren we're working with overseas who have gotten exposed to our churches, who had a very major difference on some issue. Felt like we were planting the seed out of season, you know. The seed couldn't even penetrate the ground. It was like trying to plant seed with a rock-hard, icy ground. And you're thinking, I'm not getting anywhere with this. But I'm going to tell you what, something worked its way into the cracks. And when springtime came, spiritually speaking, that person got it. All of a sudden, it struck. And I just was talking to somebody this week, and on one of the most controversial doctrines among us, and just this week I had an individual say to me, I see now a different view of this doctrine. And it just sent a shock through me, because this is not something most people change on on this issue. This is something you hold your sides to your death. The shock of it was a pleasant sensation, you know, because a lot of seed has been planted, and if as out of season as that seems, if that can break through the ground, I'm going to plant seed every time I can plant it. You realize in that 13th chapter of Matthew, when the sower went forth to sow, the sower is Jesus. And in a longer term application, you could say later the ministry. When the sower went forth to sow, he did not stay in his house and wait for people to come and get the seed. He went forth to sow. And when the sower went forth to sow, he didn't just go look for the very best ground, real rich soil, and plant there. He sowed on every kind of ground he could find. Now, some of the ground he sowed on did not get a very good return. Do you think that means the sower didn't know what he was doing? Do you think Jesus doesn't know what he's doing? If Jesus is the sower and he sowed on ground that looks like there's no way you're getting a return and even told you in the parable, nothing came of that. You'd think, well, why did you sow there? There's a lesson in that we better consider because if we're not careful, we'll get in a mindset like God's got to give us this rich soil before we start sowing. I'm going to sow with all the seed that I have because I found this interesting thing about God. If I empty my barn of seed, he will refill it. He always has done it for me. And what in the world do I lose by sowing seed on every type of ground I can find if God's going to keep refilling the seed anyway? You say, well, you're losing in all that effort. All right, you're going to have to take that up with Jesus because he's the one in the parable of the sower sowing all those types of ground. And I have found at times on ground you thought there is no possibility of a return, that seed took root. And in the middle of rocky soil and wayside soil and thorny ground, a fruitful vine came up. And I'm going to tell you what it ended up doing. The working of the roots of that vine as it grew in the ground, follow me, I'm talking about something deep and spiritual, changed the soil around it. Praise the God of heaven, saints. I'll give you another example. I know this precious brother who did not agree with a certain thing that we teach. After hearing some of our teaching on it, his heart was turned, and he became a strong proponent. But his wife was highly resistant to it, very opposed, very irritated that her husband was so convinced that this is true, you know. 
He was at home one day working on something in the house, didn't know his wife was even home, and he turned on a CD of one of our classes we had on this subject that was so offensive to her. He didn't even know she was in the house, and she was in the back of the house. And for about an hour, she was listening to that. I can't believe she didn't come out and tell him to turn it off or something else. And he went back to the back of the house to get something, and she was down on her knees weeping on the side of the bed. And she said, forgive me for fighting this. After listening, I know it's real. My Lord, the seed of the Word of God is powerful, saints. I'm not going to hoard it away. I'm going to spread it abroad as much as I can and hope that it will bring a return. But I'm not the one who determines whether it gets a return. The God of heaven and the response of the people are what will determine that. If you refuse to sow the seed on a certain spot of ground, you're prejudging that individual. That's what I've said through the years, and I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to offend anybody that feels this way. And we have men that I have great respect and love for that believe differently than I do on this particular issue. But I don't believe you can cast your pearls before swine without knowing they're swine first. Do you follow that? You can't say, don't talk to this person about some truth because they're swine because you don't know if they're swine. It's how they respond to the Word of God that determines that which means you'd have to have talked to them about it first. See, it's their response that determines whether they fall into those kind of categories where someone is swine-like or dog-like. You notice that somebody's a swine returns to their wallowing in the mud, right? Someone that's a dog returns to their vomit. Now, you want to get down to the meat of what that's talking about? Somebody that is a swine is somebody that would be given something precious that should lift them out of the condition they're in. It should cause them to straighten up. It should cause them to make a change in their life or accept that truth and carry out the practical implications of it. But instead, they hear it and they go right back to what they were doing that was foul. There's more layers, but I'm just going to give you one example of each. There's more layers. I could take that several ways. Someone that's like a dog is even simpler and a little bit more blunt. Someone that's like a dog returns their vomit is somebody that when they were offered good food, clean food, the word of God, truth. They vomited up their old beliefs, at least temporarily, to make room so they could chew on this new stuff. They vomited up what they had, then they eat yours, and then they go back to their vomit. They go right back to those false doctrines, right back to those false things they believed. Both of those things are foul. But in order for a pig to return to its wallowing, or a dog to return to its vomit, you had to first offer the pig something that it stopped wallowing in the mud and came to you. In order for a dog to return to its vomit, you had to get the dog's attention, and he came up to you before he went back to his vomit. Which means you don't know if somebody has a swine-like spirit or a dog-like spirit until you actually present the truth to them and see how they respond to it. And somebody responds like a dog, if you see that they're going to continue responding like a dog and you're not going to make any headway, just back up from that person. If somebody responds like a swine, continuing to just keep feeding them precious things and they treat them with disrespect is not productive. But you don't know if somebody's in that category till after you present them with those things. That's all I'm going to say about that. I want us to realize we do have some very precious things. And we shouldn't just cast our pearls before swine. You keep giving your pearls to swine and they keep rending them and covering them in mud. Take your pearls and get out of there. So I said here a while back, apparently there were difficult conditions that they were dealing with that did not automatically go away. They'd been dealing with difficult conditions we saw in the first chapter all the way up to this time. They started rebuilding and it looks like they were still dealing with difficult conditions for a while after they were rebuilding through that three-month period. 
I believe we as a body of people are already in the period of rebuilding that began with the altar. We're somewhere in between the time of them building the altar and the time of the restoration of the temple right now. So these points, positive and negative, have to apply to us. Because these messages are to people between the time of the rebuilding of the altar who had not yet begun the rebuilding of the temple. And as you see in the second chapter, those who had begun the rebuilding of the temple but hadn't finished it yet. We haven't finished it yet. So we are in this exact window of what this prophecy is addressing. We're clearly not past the challenges and negative conditions we've been under as a body. We're still striving to move forward and to come to unity in every area that we possibly can. And we're going to have to do that in order for us to build together. If we're trying to build the temple, and the temple being a picture of the restoration of the church, and you think this kind of stone is what belongs, it has a certain color to it, and I think this kind of stone is what belongs, it has a different color to it, and the temple is all supposed to be one nice blended series of colors, and those two colors clash, we cannot build the temple with both those stones. That's real obvious when you consider that the stones that are making up the temple are made up of a number of things, but one of the key things the stones that make up the spiritual temple are are truths. If we've got a doctrinal belief about something that we have two, if not three, if not five, if not ten different views on, we cannot build the temple with all that different material. We have got to get the same material. Because if somebody wants to put oak in the temple, and you realize it was supposed to be cedar, it might be strong wood, it might be pretty, you might have some of the most beautiful oak you've ever seen, and you might think the temple should have this in it. But if that's not what God wants in the structure, it cannot be in the structure. We have got to get unified on the materials and the methods that we use, or we are not going to restore the church. You're not going to restore the church with five or more camps using different materials and different methods. You can use different methods to get to the same job. I've seen people use different ways. Some people use different types of tools to do the very same job. And as long as it gets the job done, that may be acceptable. But you're not going to use different material than what is in the plan. You're not going to use a different structural design than what's in the plan. So we're going to have to become unified in these areas as God moves us further towards restoration, which is one of the reasons it was on my heart to go through this book that we're getting close now to closing out on. Because I feel like we are moving towards restoration. And when I look at what has to happen before the church is restored, it's going to be a big job, saints. We are not sitting there right on the edge of the cliff, ready to fall right into restoration. Nobody's falling into restoration anyway. You're going to climb into it. I don't think there's a great deal of time left. I don't think it's a few years away. But what I think has to be done is going to take some major change. Just think it through. If we have, I'm just throwing out a number, there may be less or maybe more. If we have five different ways at looking at controversial issues among us that there's division on, we're going to have to be unified on some of these things before the church will be able to be restored fully. If there are issues that affect our salvation, for sure. And some of that's going to take either a direct interaction of the Lord, or it's going to take a miraculous intervention of God. In the first, I meant him being present in person. In the second, I meant present in the Spirit. In Haggai's prophecy, not that there may not be more to the process, it looks like it was a great prophet that spoke up, and that's what instigated the moving forward. It doesn't look like an angel showed up. The angel of the Lord didn't show up. It was a prophet. What it'll take with the restored church for us to come into unity on some of these things, it's going to take a work that is going to either have to be a miraculous work or a major work, and I want to be working towards that work, not working against it. I want to be working productively to move in that direction rather than moving counterproductively, stirring up constant conflict and conditions that are not going to move us in the direction we need to go. 
I mentioned that the time it took to rebuild this latter house was actually less than it took to build the early house, which is Solomon's temple. They did it in four and a half years. You see that by looking at both Haggai as well as Ezra 6.15. Haggai, the first chapter, the first verse, and the 14th verse talks about how they began this rebuilding in the 12th month of the sixth year of Darius. In Ezra 6.15, it tells us that the house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. So it was four and a half years it took to build the house. And I think that is astonishing when you consider, you see this in 1 Kings 6, 37 and 38. It talks about how it took seven and a half years for Solomon's house. But they must have been inspired and touched by the Lord because they got on the job. They got on the job and got this done. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to have a short window to do this work, Brother Lee. When we get there, we're going to have a short window. We're going to have to be willing to change. We have to be willing to change. Willing to be changed. Because anything we have to adjust is going to have to be adjusted or it's not going to fit in the building. I want to fit in the building, don't you? If we don't make the adjustments necessary, we're not going to fit in the building. All right, these last few verses. Haggai 2, 20-23 says, Again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Now I'm going to go through these last verses pretty quick, but there's nothing negative in these statements. This is all positive and a beautiful way to end this book. And it's wonderful when a prophecy ends on a positive note, don't you think? Some of them end on pretty dark notes. This one ends on a positive note. These statements are parallel with some of the statements you saw earlier in the chapter in that 6th through that ninth verse about the shakings and things that are going to happen at the end. In a partial historical sense, the kingdoms around Judah did go through some shakings and political upheavals during this time, but there is no fulfillment in the historical record or in the life of Zerubbabel that matches the scale of this prophecy, which almost all by itself tells you this means something bigger than just the historical prophecy, that it means something on a larger scale and I think applies to the church. In its spiritual and truest fulfillment, this is not going to be fully accomplished until the restored church moves into the millennial reign period, Till we see some of these things happening in this verse. God's going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and all nations. It's interesting that God specifically refers to horses and chariots and riders being overthrown and cast down, because that's exactly what happened when the Israelites moved through the Red Sea and escaped Egypt in the Exodus, here in Exodus 14. That might spiritually parallel the crossing of Jordan that's yet to come, which sometimes we refer to that in a poetic way as the line between this day we're in and the millennial reign, that the church is going to have to cross over Jordan, over Jordan's stormy banks, you know. And that's a picture of that period between the ending of this age and moving into the next age in the millennial reign that'll include Armageddon and other things. Jordan will have overflowed its banks. So it's interesting that some of the judgments he's talking about sound so much like what he did to Egypt. He's going to do that to the nations of this world. God will overthrow the might of all kingdoms of the heathen and the thrones of all the kingdoms. And he's going to replace those thrones with one single throne upon which he'll set his son Jesus. Revelation eleven fifteen. And the seventh angel sounded. It said there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever.
In Daniel 7, several times in there, talks about that same thing. When the thrones are going to be cast down, the Ancient of Days will sit, and the kingdom's going to be given over to the children of the Most High, and all those other beautiful promises. One other thing we might want to address as we get ready to move towards the end of this chapter, close out this book, is this word signet, when he referred to Zerubbabel as a signet in the very end. That's the Hebrew word chatham. It means a seal. Sometimes it can be used to refer to like a signet ring. Sometimes it can be used to refer to the seal that's created by that signet. One way that most of us are familiar with is something that carried all the way on into the medieval period where they would have a ring with a design of some kind on it that was very unique to that particular person in authority or ruler, and they would dip it in wax or they'd press it into clay. And when you see that symbol in the wax or the clay, you know it has been sealed by that person's authority. It was sealed under their authority, or it's a message that carries their authority. The point that this is intended to convey is that God is going to make Zerubbabel his signet. He's going to be the one that bears his authority, the one who is carrying that covering of authority and power. Because whoever is the signet, or who is carrying a seal that's made by a signet, is the one who is bearing the authority of the person whose signet it is. That word's only used 14 times in the scripture, by the way. About half of them are talking about a signet that's God's. In Exodus 28, of course, it's repeated in Exodus 39, the same events. But in Exodus 28, there's the two stones that are in the breastplate of the high priest that are carved with engravings of a signet. That's in Exodus 28, 9 to 11. In Exodus 28, 36 to 38, on the plate of gold that's on the forehead of the high priest's headdress, was engravings of a signet that said holiness to the Lord. It was supposed to show the authority that that high priest bore and the authority he was operating under. I believe this making of Zerubbabel as a signet signifies God putting his authority and his power in the office that Zerubbabel would hold. Again, Zerubbabel did not accomplish any massive role in the historical record, so this is certainly referring to something spiritual. One thing I've heard some people say it might represent is God restoring the fully functioning offices of the ministry to the church when the church is restored by placing his great seal of authority and power on the ministry. It is interesting that the only time that this term is used for a person, that it actually calls a person a signet, other than right here, is in Jeremiah 22-24 when God is talking about Zerubbabel's grandfather, who he calls their Coniah, but he's called by several names of the Bible. Jehoiachin is the one that most people are familiar with. And he says of him, As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. This is before he's getting ready to send them into the Babylonian captivity. And he's basically saying, even if he were my signet, I'd take him off my hand. I'm not going to let him have my authority anymore. He's not going to be the bearer of authority. When we're talking about Zerubbabel being a picture of some associated with the restored church, That might represent the falling away of the church. God took his signet away from that church. His authority was taken away. But it's going to be restored in the restored church. Zerubbabel, who was the historical governor of Judah, might also be a picture of the bride of Christ, who's going to receive authority and power alongside Christ to rule the kingdoms. Then as we get ready to close out this book, there's just one passage left in my mind that uses this kind of a word that I think would be a nice passage just to close on. It's the Song of Solomon, the 8th chapter, the last chapter of that book, the 5th through the 7th verse. It is talking about the church being restored, especially those who are striving to be a part of the bride. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. 
And listen to what he says to his church that is in the process of restoration. The church coming out of the wilderness is the church being restored. The wilderness is the state the church is in when it's not restored. So until the church comes out of the wilderness, it's not restored. Set me as a seal upon thy heart. You want to remain in relationship with the Lord? That's what you're going to need to do. Set him as a seal. Set me as a seal upon thine arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave, and the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath the most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. Which means if we will put the Lord first, if our love is for him and for his work, we're going to be coming right up out of the wilderness, leaning on his arm. And in order for us to make it out of the wilderness, for the church to go from the state it is in presently to a restored state, we're going to have to set him as a seal upon our heart. He's going to have to be our highest love. Our love for him is going to have to be the thing that is the authority over our lives. Individually, at the family level, at the local church level, and at the body level, he's going to have to be the seal that's on our heart. Our motives for whatever we do are going to have to be love of God. If it's love of fame, if it's desire for a kingdom, if it's a desire for influence and power or attention, we are not going to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. If we're stuck on some way of doing things that is not the way God wants things done, or we're caught up in some kind of emotionalism that we have labeled the Spirit, or we're caught up in some kind of an idea about the Scripture that came out of our own carnal thinking instead of being inspired by the anointing of God, we are never going to do this. He has to be our first love. Our first love cannot be our traditions, unless those traditions are traditions he gave us. Our first love cannot be our pet doctrines. It has to be God. If our first love is God, we'll be willing to give up the things that maybe are so hard for us to release that are going to be necessary for us to release, for us to move upward and onward towards restoration. So God in heaven, help us to set him as a seal upon our heart and a seal on our arm. You know what that means? Love for him is the thing that guides your thoughts and your feelings and it guides your actions. And if our love for God controls our thoughts and our feelings and our actions, we'll be sure to be among that group that is leaning on his arm coming up out of the wilderness as the church moves into restoration.